Thanks very much, Ryan, and uh, thanks also to Trevor and Hannah, Angie. Uh, the openings are always so uplifting and so appropriate to what's going on because they don't really know what the speaker is going to talk about. And when I see some of the words that are in those songs, I think somehow they saw what I was putting down on paper. It's unfortunate that we have such a short time to spend on such an important passage. Another resurrection story, again. But I'm going to try and make it a little bit different for you. I want you to look at it in a different way. If I asked you what your favorite book was, what would the answer be? Nobody has a favorite book? That would be the politically correct answer? Yes, the Bible. Now, if you went before the Lord and he asked you what was your favorite book, would you say the Bible? And could you say it with a straight face and mean it? And would he accept your answer? How many times have you been in the Bible this week? Is there one piece of the Bible that's irrelevant to you? That doesn't mean anything? What I want you to see today as we talk about the chapter that's called Resurrection or the chapter about Mary, however you want to title it. I want you to see a few different things. First of all, I want you to see that this is about God. It's not about you. As much as you are part of the picture, you are not the picture. You are here for a reason, and that's His reason. And that's what it's all about. So you can try and affect it in any way you want. But God is in control, and He has been from the beginning. And he will be long after you are gone from this body that you're in right now. And I want you to think about that. This whole time that we've spent in the last two or three years talking about the story, the upper level, the lower level, why do we believe, all of those things. What's so amazing about grace? It's not about us. It's about God. And I want to show you some comparisons here that jumped out at me when I started to study this. And I was going to do the traditional resurrection story and tell you all about Mary and tell you all about why it's important that we believe what we believe and why Mary was the first one at the tomb and all that. And we'll talk about that a little bit maybe, but that's not the importance of where I want to go. This passage is sort of timely. We're maybe a little bit out of sync, but it is Easter time coming. And it's a time when we focus on the death of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The one that we nailed to the cross, by the way. Not somebody else. We nailed him to the cross. But he had the power and the fortitude and the foresight to allow himself to be nailed to that cross and then to rise up again. And that's what makes him different above all other so-called gods. If he didn't do that, he would just be another prophet who was unable to produce what he said he could produce. So we're going to look not only at the cross for the one who died us for us and took away their blemishes, sins gone by and sins yet to come. It's only half of the story. The other half is the redemption that he gives us. This talk needs to be about how we should be in awe of our God. Omnipresent omnipotent, unchangeable. 
When one reads this passage, there's a tendency to focus on Mary, and we should, I suppose, to a point. But ask yourselves, why Mary? Why me? Because when Mary was there at the tomb, so were you. You saw what Mary saw. You're seeing it right now as you read the words. You're actually there. But I want you to look at it from above. What did God see when he did this? You know, John wrote in his epistle a little bit further on in this chapter near the end, he said, I wrote this epistle so that you may believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. That was his purpose for going through this. He wanted to prove to you that Jesus was a man. He showed you that by showing you that Jesus wept, that he loved, that he was compassionate, that he healed that he was thirsty, that he was hungry, that he could be human, and yet he was God at the same time. There was something special about this man. There are parallels in other passages that give credence to this. Earlier on we studied in John 5.17 when Jesus speaks regarding the accusation that he healed a sick man who had been on his bed for 38 years, a man who could not walk. He had healed him on the Sabbath. Jesus says that my father has been working until now, and I have been working. You know, we skim over that particular phrase, but that's pretty powerful words. He's telling you, he was here all along, he's been at it. We just aren't getting it. The plan was progressing, the works of Jesus were nearly done. His son had completed his work here on earth. He laid the foundation and became the cornerstone, so to speak. Uh, that foundational piece has been paid for through his death. It is the seventh day, so to speak, in Jesus' week. He's done what he needed to do. In the same way that God rested on the seventh day, Jesus now will rest as well for a period of time until he comes back to rule over his kingdom. Now that doesn't mean it's literally the seventh day. But his work is done. This part of the plan is complete. But note, note the first verse of this chapter. It says, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw the stone had been taken away from the tomb. On the first day. There's a transition here. We talk about the transition from death to life as Jesus rose again. And yes, there is that transition. There's also a transition here from God's work to man's work. And I know that we don't get to heaven through our works, but we are obligated, directed, encouraged to do good works for God because we love Him, because we are following Him, not because it gets us any closer to any great reward. We've already got the reward. but we work for it anyway on the first day. So what's amazing about this book, to me, is how everything falls together. And I've said this many times before. It doesn't matter where you take a passage. There's another passage that corresponds to it and ties into it and reinforces it and sometimes takes it a little bit further. 
And I want to just show you some of those things that maybe you never thought about. What about Genesis 1 to 5? Very, very familiar piece. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and was void, and darkness was in the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. Isn't that a little reminiscent of where we are now? Now, on the first day, when, when the, she, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early, it was still dark. The world was still in darkness on the first day. Much like when God had created the world. Sort of without form, without substance. Now is our chance to make it substantial. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. So the evening and the morning were the first day. Sounds a little bit familiar, doesn't it? How about John, chapter 1, and the first few chapters? We just read this in Genesis, but here it is in John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. The darkness did not comprehend it. Chapter 20. Verse 9. All of Christ's disciples had spent considerable time with him, listening to him, watching his teaching, seeing the miracles that he did. You would think if anybody understood what this was about, it would be them. Look what verse 9 says. Maybe I should back up just to number 8. Then the other disciple who came to the tomb first went in also, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not know the scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. They did not understand it. And yet they've been told over and over and over again. It came right from the horse's mouth. This is not hearsay. This is not second-hand knowledge. This came right from God. And yet they didn't understand it. A little bit reminiscent. What about the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit was there in Genesis 1. It was hovering over the earth. As things were being created. As night and day was being developed. We're told that the Holy Spirit is an integral part of what is going to happen here as Jesus rises. In chapters, chapter 15, verse 26, it says, But when the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father will testify of me. 
And again in 16.7, he says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. In Genesis, it was the first time that the world had been exposed to light. And God was happy about the whole situation. He was pretty pleased with his work. Through sin, we brought darkness into God's light. The world was plunged into darkness because of man. Here in our opening verse of chapter 20, God again reminds us that he has brought light into the world. That light is his son. A little bit different than the light we were talking about in Genesis perhaps. But it is the light of the world. This is a transition period here. In Genesis, the transition was going from mankind who lived in light all the time. I can't think of anything that would have been lighter than Eden. I mean, everything was there. It was perfect. Perfect. And yet we made it dark somehow. And here we are now. We've been given the Savior to the world. And what did we do? We nailed them to the cross. We killed them. It's pretty dark. So what's the upside to this? This is a period of transition right now. This is a period where it does go from light to darkness. But it also goes from darkness to light. The difference here is that the battle has already been won for us. There is nothing we can do to save ourselves. We have already been saved. Just think of it. A minute speck of darkness crept into the world through a serpent and for centuries the world got dark. Darker and darker. It was like a bruise on one apple. And I don't know if you've ever watched an apple. It's probably been in that bowl and every time you went to pick a piece of fruit you avoided that apple because you know it had a spot and you were hoping that maybe your wife would take it <laughs> or your children would take it and they'd just bite it and spit it out and you know. but you'd have the apple that was a little bit more perfect. But if you left it there for two or three days it didn't just have one spot, it had two or three spots. And sometimes it spread to the apple beside it. And before you know it you had a whole bowl of rotten apples that nobody wanted to pick. There wasn't one in it that was any good. You know, God tried to correct the, uh, the rotten apple syndrome one time with Noah. He kept what he thought was a good set of fruit and got rid of the rest, and it still didn't work. There was still sin in the world. It might have been a temporary fix for a while. It was drastic, but it didn't cure the problem. And God knew in the end it was only temporary and that he must prune away that rot once and for all and provide a way that all the fruit would not perish. But doesn't that sound a little bit like John 15? I am the vine. Sounds like that to me. He's going to prune away those things which are blemished and keep only the unblemished. There's none on earth who could do that. And if Christ had not risen again, he would have been just another one who had made that prediction, that claim. Just a false prophet. 
But he was able to do that. He is able to cleanse the barrel of rotten fruit. There's something else here too. On the first day of the week, the term first day denotes to me a new beginning, a fresh start, a chance to do it over again. And maybe that's what we have here. A chance to do it again. The difference here is, as I said, is that the victory's already been won. We're going to fight the battles, but we know who wins the war. Now I told you we were going to discuss Mary a little bit, and we will. We won't spend a lot of time on her, but I do want to bring her up because I think there are other things that have been spoken about her and we need to put it into perspective. Because as much as Mary is part of this picture, so are you. You are there with Mary. In Genesis, God brought forth man first and then woman. And she was there in the beginning. When the sin was created, she was there. Most people would acknowledge that Mary was a sinner. Her background wasn't very good. And yet somehow, she had worked her way into Jesus' inner sanctum. She had become friends with Jesus. And isn't that what Jesus does? He looks for the lowest of the low. He looks for the person who is crying out for help. Not for the person who thinks he has it made or has it set up, but for the person who truly needs him. And that's where he spends his time. That's why he healed the man that had been sick for 38 years, because it was necessary. That man had showed something to Jesus that he wanted to see. Mary had done the same thing. Now why would Mary be the one at the tomb? Why weren't the disciples at the tomb? We're talking about Peter coming. Mary going and telling Peter that the tomb has been laid open and that Jesus is not there. And Peter and the other disciple come along. Why were they not there? Why is it that there's all this crying by Mary? We don't hear Peter crying or the other disciple or anyone else for that matter. But Mary is crying. Could it be that God just thought that maybe he'd try it with women this time instead of men? The men had screwed it up the first time. Maybe the women could get it right. I don't think so. Is it because that he thought he would reward Mary after all the years of sinning? He would provide that way out of the rotten barrel of fruit. That's possible. I want to read you a section out of a Charles Spurgeon sermon. And this is on the manifestation of Christ Jesus and the premise that Mary loved him the most. And that's why she was there at the tomb. How strange it was that Jesus should appear to her. What, give the honor to her who had the most of sin? Methinks, however, that Mary was selected to see Jesus first because she loved Jesus most. John loved Jesus much, but Mary loved him better. John went away when he saw the empty sepulcher, but Mary stood without and wept. 
And oh, if you want to see Jesus and have sweet revelations of his glory, you must love him. But more, you must add to that, you must weep for him. Seek him diligently. Seek him in the darkness and the twilight. Seek him when the sun has risen. Seek him at the tomb before the stone is rolled away. You must seek him in the hollow tomb. You must seek him in the garden. You must seek him in life and death. And then the more diligently you are seeking him, the more probability that God will manifest himself in you and you will rejoice in finding him. Isn't that exactly what we see with Mary? He goes on to say that Mary Magdalene should comfort all of us who after years of sin have finally found a Savior. We are now different from the person we used to be. In this final statement from Charles Spurgeon, he brings another line of thinking to me on the subject. We can all acknowledge that Mary had a rough beginning, but in the end she did what pleased the Lord. And isn't that what we want to do? Mary was the example that Christ wanted to use to illustrate the why Mary, why me concept. If Mary, a lowly lady of ill repute, not a very good background, nothing in particular to offer the world in the eyes of the secular world, was Christ's choice to be at the tomb, what does that speak to us? That says that you are worthy. We are all worthy. None is above anyone else. You know, in this verse, in this chapter, I should say, there are verses that speak about the most favored disciple. And Peter, and we know where Peter stood in his relationship with Jesus. Why weren't they at the tomb? Why didn't they spend time at the tomb? Okay, maybe it's not manly to cry. But they just spent three very tough years with the Son of God. And when you think of all the stories and all the miracles that we've read about in these these chapters previous, wouldn't you have wanted to have spent just a little bit of time reminiscing? Just wondering what went wrong? What did you do to cause this? Or what could you have done differently? Or was it your fault? Or whatever. But would you not have spent some time thinking about that? No, they just left the sepulcher and went back to what they were doing. The feast of the Passover. You know, we're all bruised fruit, like Mary was. But like Mary, we all get a new beginning. Christ is risen. He is alive. We have a new hope, a new beginning. It shouldn't be a sad time. It should be a great time for us. It really should. I know that we've sent our Lord and Savior to the cross. But there is an upside to it. What he offers us in return. In the beginning, God gave it all to Adam and Eve. He laid his grace upon them freely and without exception in the same way that he did to you and I. Now it's going to be just a little bit different. It's going to be for those of us who repent and profess our love for his son. That's not asking a lot. Have you asked that of the Lord? Do you ask it every day? Do you remind him that you're still here, that you still love him, 
that you still need Him. Every hour I need you. Remember the song we just sang? Do you believe that? Or are those just words? Verse 30, 31 says, And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of His disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. For Christians like Mary and ourselves, death is not the end, but the beginning of a new life with God. We can study this chapter for months. You're going to study about the devotion of Mary, the emotion of Mary, the submission of Mary to her Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But I think the big question here is, what can you learn from Mary? Because you are Mary in many, many ways. There's one more passage here, just as I come to close on this. And that's verse 17 that struck me as we went through this. Verse 17 says, this is just after Jesus had said to her, Mary, and she recognized him. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, and to my God and to your God. A lot of the conversations that we've had over the past few months, and especially when we get into Romans, we speak of slaves and servants and brothers and the differences between those words. I believe this also is a transitional period in that relationship. We are now being offered to become one in the same with the family of Christ. We are family. My father is your father and Christ's father. He says, find my brothers and tell them I am ascending to my father and your father to my God and your God. And he's saying this to Mary. So he's saying to Mary, my father and your father, my God and your God. It's not just to the disciples, it's to Mary as well. He's inviting her to become part of the family. Is that an invitation you're going to turn down? You know, it's possible that Mary truly understood what she had been offered, and this was the reason for her overwhelming joy. I don't know. This joyous state reached by sparse few is exactly the reason they attempt good works, not for points or rewards, but rather for the glory and honor of he who goes before us. But you know something? I believe that in this verse, Mary has laid claim to one of those mansions with many rooms that have been created for us. I think she's taken part of her reward. She's been invited to be part of the family of God. When it happens to Mary, it can happen to any of us. So are you not happy about that? Are you not joyful about that? Or are you just going to leave later on today and we'll open this book next Sunday again on a different topic? 
Because the Lord wants you to come to Him every hour. You need to need Him every hour. That's what it's all about. There's no way that we can know God without knowing His Son, Jesus Christ. And there's no way that we're going to spend time in that mansion beside Mary or beside Peter or whoever else is going to be in heaven without first repenting, telling Christ that we understand what He did for us on the cross, that we ask His forgiveness for what we did to Him, that we want to follow Him and accept Him in totality as our Savior, and that we want to be faithful to Him and then all those other verses that come in this Bible will mean something to you. This book will become your favorite book. And when you go before the Lord and He says, security question one for access, what is your favorite book? And you say, the Bible, your word, God. He will look at you and say, well done, good and faithful servant. That's really what it's all about. So when you look at this passage, resurrection, don't avoid the fact that Mary was there. Don't avoid the fact that Jesus ascended to heaven and that the Holy Spirit came down. Don't avoid the fact that there were other people there and that he stayed around for a while just to make sure that everybody knew that he did indeed rise again. But don't lose sight of the fact that God is in charge with everything and all things that we do. For the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Lord, this is a time when we relinquish ourselves to You, when we humble ourselves on fallen knees, Lord, acknowledging that You are Lord and Savior, the Alpha and the Omega, that You did indeed die, but You rose again. And that makes You our living God. Thank You, Lord, for this message. Thank You for loving us enough to go to the cross for us, but also for rising again and showing us that world that is beyond, that we are no longer here, that the old has passed away. Behold, a new creation in Christ Jesus. Lord, thank you for this day. We are so humbled and in awe of you. And we thank you and ask your blessing on the remainder of this day. In your name, amen. Please remember, there is a green share in the post, Paul. Feel free to... Uh... Thanks, Trevor. <laughs> Thanks, Ryan.